0: Next month marks a special anniversary in the life of Methodist and Wesleyan churches around the world. Indeed, even in the Church of England, this particular day is celebrated as a feast day for John and Charles Wesley. I'm talking about Aldersgate Day, which is May 24th, 283 years ago in 1738 our very own john wesley attended a bible study on aldersgate street in london and he wrote about the experience in his journal as follows in the evening i went very unwillingly to a society in aldersgate street where one was reading luther's preface to the epistle to the romans About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Prior to this date, in 1738, Wesley had already started a small Methodist movement with some classmates at Oxford University. He had been ordained a minister in the Church of England, and he had even gone to this weird British colony in America called Georgia as a missionary. No one would accuse Wesley of not even being a Christian. Well, no one except Wesley himself. Wesley lacked an assurance of his salvation, which the Bible promises that God's children through faith in Christ will have, will have an assurance. But Wesley didn't, so he was worried. Months earlier, on his way back from Savannah, Georgia, to England, um, he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? But all that changed when he attended this Bible study on Paul's letter to the Romans. His heart was strangely warmed. And this took place because the people who were attending the study, um, along with the 200-year-old words of Martin Luther, um, opened the scriptures to Wesley. And speaking of one's heart being strangely warm, warmed, something similar happened to these two disciples on the road to a small village called Emmaus. After their conversation with the resurrected Lord in verse 32, listen to what it says. They said to each other, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures so who are these two disciples they they weren't a part of the Group of 12 who lived with Jesus and and ministered alongside him full time for the past three years. They may have been a part of that group of 72 whom he commissioned to go into the neighboring towns of Israel and teach and preach and heal. Um, they, If so, that means they had witnessed plenty of miracles that Jesus had performed, and Jesus had even empowered them to perform miracles in his name. Regardless, neither of them believed at this point that Jesus had been resurrected. And And this is the point at which Jesus meets them on the road. And it should have been like the happiest moment of their lives, except verse 16 tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Were kept from recognizing him. That's called the passive voice. If you remember your English class, who or what? Kept these two disciples from recognizing Jesus. This is what Bible scholars call the divine passive. In the Bible, when an author uses the passive voice to avoid identifying who is doing something, in this case, preventing. These two disciples from recognizing Jesus, that usually means God is the one who is doing it. And this is why the New Living Translation comes right out and puts it like this in verse 16. It just says, But God kept them from recognizing Jesus. This is really strange. If Jesus' point is simply to prove to these two disciples that Jesus had been resurrected, isn't this the last thing that Jesus would want to do? To prevent them from recognizing him? It doesn't make sense. Unless, maybe Jesus doesn't want simply to prove that he's been resurrected. If that were the case, he would have just said, Hey guys, it's me, I'm Jesus, I'm back. No. No. While Jesus certainly intends to convince them that he's been resurrected, he wants something more. He wants to convince them from Scripture that he was supposed to be crucified and then three days later resurrected. In the first place, the cross was not some kind of unforeseen tragedy, but it was a part of God's plan from the very beginning. In other words, before God created the universe, before he made the first human being, he knew that he would need to redeem the world from its sin through his son Jesus. So Jesus wants to show them that all along, the authors of Scripture and the prophets of the Old Testament were pointing to Christ's atoning work on the cross. And the way in which jesus death would be vindicated by his resurrection, Jesus wants to show them that the Bible is telling the truth, and that they can trust it. Gosh, five years ago now, I think, one of the countries one of the world 's most successful pastors, Andy Stanley preached a controversial sermon in which he told his congregation at North Point Community Church in Alpharetta that if they didn't like the Old Testament, if they had problems with it, if it didn't make sense to them, if they, if they had a hard time believing it, that's okay because they can just, he said this, unhitch the Old Testament from the rest of their Christian faith. Well, he got a lot of flack for saying this, and he you know, he had to backtrack and backpedal and try to explain himself. He assured everyone that it's not because he himself didn't love the Old Testament and believe in the Old Testament. He does. But it's okay if would-be Christians who were considering converting, <laughs> if they didn't, uh, if they didn't believe it. Because the most important thing to know, he said, the most important fact in the world is that Jesus was resurrected. And like me, Andy Stanley believes that there is plenty of historical evidence to prove the resurrection of Jesus, but he goes much further than I would, and he says that you, you don't even need the Old Testament So if the Old Testament is a stumbling block to you, he says, just unhitch it. Just forget about it. If you don't believe in parts of the Bible, that's okay. Just don't let it prevent you from believing in the resurrection because the resurrection is the most important thing, not the question of whether or not God is telling the truth in his word. Now, I have great respect for Andy Stanley. But that is what he was saying, and I simply can't reconcile that point of view with what Jesus says and does in today's scripture. In other words, if Andy Stanley were right, why wouldn't Jesus simply say to these two disciples, guys, it's me. I'm resurrected just like I said I would be. Remember? Just Set aside the Bible. I know it can be difficult and confusing. You may not understand it or you may not agree with it. You, you may not like it. So just unhitch it. You've got me. You don't, you don't really need this book. But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus talks to them for a long time, about all the ways in which the Old Testament points to Him, to His atoning work on the cross, to His resurrection. And keep in mind, this was... This village of Emmaus was seven miles from Jerusalem. It probably would have taken them two and a half hours to walk that distance. And if Jesus caught up with them near the beginning of that journey, as it seems likely, well, gosh, he obviously had a lot to say about all the ways in which the Old Testament pointed to him, to his gospel, to the cross, to his resurrection. And I'm tempted in this sermon to talk about some of those things that Jesus surely said to those two disciples on the road, but I'll save that for another sermon. Suffice it to say, I believe that the entire Old Testament is ultimately about Christ, his gospel, his atoning work on the cross, and those like us who find our lives in him. And notice verse 25. Jesus says something strange again. He says, "O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Now that's weird. These two disciples, whoever they were, were undoubtedly close to Jesus. In fact, we learn from verse 24 that these two were connected to that group of women who went to the empty tomb earlier that morning. It's possible, if not likely, that they heard Jesus predict that he would be crucified and resurrected, and surely they had at least heard about Jesus's teaching on the subject. But oddly enough, Jesus doesn't say to them, why didn't you believe me? No, he says, why didn't you believe all that the prophets had spoken in this book That's that's shorthand for saying, why didn't you believe the Bible? He scolds them ever so gently for failing to believe this book. My point is, Jesus wants his disciples. No, he requires his disciples to believe the Bible. This is a non-negotiable part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He wants us to believe in the truthfulness of God's Word, and I want you to as well. And listen, if you're struggling to believe this book or parts of this book, I probably have Struggled with you at some point in my life. I, but I, I promise you also that, that I, I think I probably can answer any objection or any question that you have uh, about anything in here. And I would be happy to help you and uh, help you uh, uh, come to a better understanding of what the Bible says. So come and see me if, if you're struggling. But <laughs> here's the question. Does, does this... All this stuff that we're talking about, does this relate at all to the division in our denomination and what we're going through right now as United Methodists? You better believe it does. (laughs) While no one, as far as I know, is talking about unhitching the Old Testament, it's close enough. They want to Unhitch large portions of the Old Testament, and even plenty of parts of the New Testament as well. If you don't believe me, consider this. Adam Adam Hamilton is by far the the most famous and influential United Methodist pastor. He's a best-selling author. He pastors one of only a handful of United Methodist megachurches. We Methodists don't do megachurches very well, but gosh, he's got one of them, and it's doing quite well, although they have lost at least hundreds of members over the last decade. But in 2014, Hamilton published a book called Making Sense of the Bible. Some of you know all about it, I'm sure. He offers in that book a couple of deeply troubling, unbiblical, and unorthodox ideas about Scripture. I I blogged about this book many years ago when I used to blog about these sorts of things. And um, he even told me back then that he was going to respond to what I had written, and he didn't. But listen, I'm not blaming him. I mean, who am I? He's Adam Hamilton, for heaven's sake. Anyway, in the book, um, he said that we can divide all of Scripture into one of three buckets Into bucket number one, he says, you can put most of the Bible, because it reflects God's heart, character, and timeless will for human beings. Now, other scripture, he said, belongs in bucket number two, and this applies to to scripture that at one time expressed um, God's will, but is no longer binding, and that would include the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses, things like Jewish dietary laws, circumcision, purity laws, which Jesus and the New Testament authors tell us are no longer binding on Christians. But these would be in bucket number two. So far, so good. (laughs) The problem is with what Hamilton calls bucket number three. These are parts of the Bible, he says, that never fully expressed the heart, character, or will of God. In other words, the Bible got it wrong, but I'm sorry. This is completely against what Scripture even says about itself. For example, in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Older translations said, All scripture is inspired by God or given by the inspiration of God. But unfortunately, the word inspiration has been watered down over the centuries. It doesn't mean as much as it used to. The word there for inspired is theonustos, which literally means breathed out by God, which is why newer translations like the NIV, the ESV, and others translate it that way. Um, What it means, though, is that the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is the very Spirit of Christ, guided the authors of Scripture to write what they wrote. God superintended what they wrote. Most importantly, God ensured that Scripture says precisely what God wants it to say. But forget about what Paul wrote for a moment. Listen to Jesus himself. Don't think that I I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or, or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven or in john 10 35 jesus said scripture cannot be broken or scripture cannot be set aside or or altered there's more i could say but let's go back to our friend john wesley he said that this scripture from second timothy implies that the bible is infallibly true indeed in a journal entry dated july 24th 1776 wesley was complaining about a writer in his day who was arguing that not all of the bible was inspired by god and some of its writers made mistakes wesley wrote this nay if there be any mistakes in the bible there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, that book did not come from the God of truth. Because of his strong convictions about the truthfulness of this book, Wesley wrote the following in a preface to one of his own books. I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God Himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, He came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius. Libri, which means a man of one book. Wesley aspired to be a man of one book. That doesn't mean, by the way, Wesley did not read plenty of other books. He was an Oxford scholar, for heaven's sake. Um, but, But I want to also be a man of one book. I want to be a person of one book. I want you to be a person of one book. Sometimes... People will, I guess they're, they're complimenting me, I hope, when they say, Brent, you, you preach with such passion. And I want to say, where do you think that passion comes from? It comes from my belief in the complete truthfulness of, of this book. I aspire to live and die by the words of this book because the words of this book are the very words of God. In the days, weeks, and months ahead, perhaps even this week, <laughs> um, you're going to hear a lot about issues that are dividing our denomination. It's no secret, I suppose, that I am what's called a traditionalist. I've been called worse. <laughs> I am called worse. <laughs> um Sometimes I'm called a theological conservative, and that's fine, just so you know that when I say theological conservative, I'm not talking about partisan politics. It has nothing to do with which candidate we support for president. It has nothing to do with whether we're Democrats or Republicans. From my perspective, both Democrats and Republicans need Jesus Equally, and based on conversations with lots of people around t- town and from reading the editorial section of our of our fine paper here in town it 's clear that an overwhelming majority of Tacoa residents are Republicans, which is great that 's fine um, but but I also know that A large majority of people in this town are lost and in need of Jesus and his gospel. Ask me which of those two facts I care about. My passion is to tell people, Democrats and Republicans, all about Jesus and his gospel. But to be a traditionalist in our denomination means that I support our United Methodist Book of Discipline as it is currently written. I support the time-tested doctrines that it contains. Eleven years ago, when I was ordained as an elder in full connection, I stood up and told the North Georgia Conference, my bishop and my God, that I sincerely believed in the truth of these doctrines because, I said, I was convinced that they represented the truth as revealed in Scripture, God's Word. And everyone who stood alongside me at that annual conference in Athens said the same thing and made the same promises. My convictions have not changed one iota since then. And I have heard no arguments from God's word, that have shaken my convictions. And I'm pretty sure I've heard all the arguments that are out there on all sides of the issue that divide us as a denomination. Not to be dramatic, but when the first Protestant, Martin Luther, was put on trial by his church in Germany, The question he faced was this. Would he be faithful to his church and its leaders, or would he be faithful to the truth as revealed in Scripture? I hope that family didn't just leave because they were offended. Uh, Anyway, uh, sorry. Um, And literally, this is interesting, literally 500 years ago, this day... (laughs) Luther spoke these famous words to his church. He said, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. And I could say the same thing. Because make no mistake, despite what you will undoubtedly hear, soon. The main question concerning our United Methodist Church is not related to marriage or physical intimacy or anything like that. The main question is this, do we believe that God is telling the truth in these words, that his Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, breathed out these words and that we trust them and we believe in them? I do. I do believe that God is telling the truth in these words. So, so here I stand. I, I can do no other. I suppose it would help my career if I stood somewhere else, but I, I, I can't. I can't do that as a matter of integrity, and I invite you to stand with me. I believe God is telling the truth in His Word completely, nothing but the truth. And if I didn't believe that, I would have a hard time, I know we're running late, I would have a hard time applying today's scripture to my life. Because notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Jesus doesn't need to ask that question. He knows the answer. But by asking it, it's almost as if it's almost as if he's—he's—he's. He's, uh, he's, um, it's almost as if he goes straight to their place of pain. You know how a surgeon is said to have to injure someone before they can heal them. That's what Jesus is doing by asking this question. It hurts it hurts these two disciples to talk about the pain, the grief, the disappointment, the sorrow, the sense of failure, the sense of futility that they've experienced over these past few days. The ESV says, and they stood still looking sad. But I like the way the NLT puts it better, they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. This is heart-wrenching stuff Jesus is asking them to dredge up. But Jesus wants them to tell him about their pain, to tell him all about it. And since they're talking to Jesus, they are quite literally doing what? They are praying. And Jesus wants us to pray like that too. And, and when they finish speaking to him, to Jesus, in verses 19 to 24, what does Jesus do? He speaks back to them. He talks to them. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's lucky for them. I mean, after all, these two disciples had the privilege of of having Jesus speak to them in the flesh, in an audible voice. Imagine hearing the voice of Jesus when you pray. By contrast, when I'm in the midst of a crisis and I tell Jesus about it, it's a one-way conversation. Maybe you're thinking something like that. But don't you see, that's not true. At least it doesn't have to be. Because notice how Jesus speaks to these two disciples in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later in verse 32, they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? See, I think this is why Jesus kept those two disciples from recognizing him earlier. Because his lesson to them was his lesson to us as well. It was as if Jesus were saying something like this. I'm with you in the flesh right now, and you're among only a handful of people in history, in the history of the world, who will have the privilege of listening to me speak to them directly. But notice the way in which I'm speaking to you. I'm opening the scriptures to you. I'm showing you how these God-breathed words apply to your particular situation right now. Through the words of scripture, I'm giving you precisely what you need to cope with this difficult trial you're enduring. And guess what? even when I ascend to be with my Father and I won't be physically present to speak to you in an audible voice, you'll still have this book. And best of all, as I promised my disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper, I'm giving you my spirit, the very one who breathed out the words of this book, and he will show you how these words apply to you. He will remind you of all the things that I say in this book. He will guide you to understand what it means. And he'll help you find the right words from this book when you need them. See, I will speak to you when I'm no longer here in the flesh. I'll speak to you in much the same way I'm speaking to you now through the words of Scripture, the words of this book. Some sarcastic preacher said one time that if you want to hear God speak to you in an audible voice, you should read the Bible out loud. <laughs> that may not be pastorally sensitive, but it's true enough. I would only add that Jesus is God. His Holy Spirit is God. His Holy Spirit breathed out the wor- these words so that we could hear Jesus speak to us. And when Jesus does speak to us, his voice will usually sound a lot like the words of this book. Will we listen to him? Will we believe him when he speaks? I pray that we will. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will Come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see ToccoaFirstUMC.org for more information.